When I, um, when I left home for university, my mother replaced me with a dog. And um, yeah, uh, it was a dog called Sammy. What my mother had not anticipated is that this would cause her to go through a crisis of identity. Okay, afterwards, she described how her identity had changed throughout her life. Okay, she began as Tommy, my grandfather. She began as Tommy's daughter. Then she became George's, George was my father, my father's wife, George's wife, Tommy's daughter, George's wife. Then she was Martin's mother, but now she was reduced to being Sammy's owner. I mean, how humiliating is that? She would go for a walk and take the dog out for a walk and meet someone and they'd go, oh, so you're Sammy's owner. Dave, Dave, come and meet Sammy's owner. Okay, it's not exactly flattering, is it, to be defined by your dog, to have your identity defined by that. Okay, if you think about it, in our current cultural moment, identity, who you are, how you identify yourself, that is a huge issue, isn't it? I mean, tribes have been and are being formed based on sexual identity or on an identity as a victim of one form of oppression or of another. Or think about the use of pronouns, who I am to say that you are, or so-called misgendering or dead naming, or who can go into what bathroom or play what sport based on who they say they are. Those are all hot-button issues, aren't they? And as a result, our politics are increasingly marked by what is called identity politics, whether you're on the right or the left, as each group seeks to have its narrative be the prevailing one. Okay, all of which raises a big question, doesn't it? Who are you? Who are you? And who gets to say who you are? Who gets to decide? Do your feelings or your sexual desires determine your identity? Or does what you do or have determine who you are? Or is your identity something that is shaped from outside of you? And if it's not determined by what you do, how should your identity determine what you do? How should it influence how you live? Well, if you look at it, Today's passage is all about identity. First, it's about Jesus' identity, and then it's about your identity. Okay, first point then, the question of identity. And Mark, as we've been saying, as we've been going through, Mark has been building up to this moment in chapter 8, when in verse 29, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that that is the question of our age. Who do you say that I am? Except here it's to do with Jesus. And in getting us there, Mark has been providing evidence upon evidence to help us come to a conclusion, to come to a decision. Evidence like Jesus' authority over demons. Jesus' authority over sickness, over leprosy, over nature, and over the Sabbath. But before presenting us finally with the question, Jesus' question, Mark gives us one more bit of evidence, doesn't he? 
he gives us one more miracle, except this one, it's a bit odd. Verses 22 and 23. Some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Have you ever had a bad day at the office? Have you ever had one of those days where you just know that you are not firing quite right and you're just a bit off your game? Is that Jesus here? I mean, is Jesus just having one of those days where things aren't quite going the way he would want them to go? Because, you know, he asked, Jesus asked him, you know, can you see anything? And the man says, yes, I can see, but not clearly. I can make people out, but they're kind of blurred. They're like trees walking. So is this Jesus able to heal, but the power's not quite flowing right? He's not quite firing at his best, so he has to take two. And verse 25, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Is that what's going on here? You know, like the old adage, you know, if at first you don't succeed, what do you do? You try, try, and try again. Is that this? Jesus tried once, doesn't quite get there, so he tries again. Okay, if that was the case, which it isn't, okay, why would Mark present this miracle right before Jesus pushing the disciples to the point of decision about who he is? Why present a sort of semi-success or a seeming weakness, or a near failure, an inability to heal first go, why make that the last miracle which you're supposed to base your decision on? Well, the answer is because that is not what this is about. Okay, firstly, throughout this healing, does Jesus ever appear flustered? Does he ever, does he ever appear like things aren't quite going the way he wants? I mean, does he say anything like, oh, there must be some blockage here? You know, man, you need to, you, there must be something in your life. There must be some unconfessed sin. Okay, you need to be praying harder. You need more faith, brother. Is that what's going on? No, Jesus appears in absolute control. The one thing he does is something that he never does elsewhere. He interrupts this healing with a question. Verse 23, do you see anything? Now, does that sound familiar to you? Do you see anything? Why ask that question? Well, look back at what happened right before this healing. In verses 17 to 21, Jesus has just machine-gunned, peppered the disciples with questions, one of which, verse 18, is... Having eyes, do you not see? In fact, you could summarize the eight questions that Jesus has asked the disciples with this one question that he asks the blind man. Do you see anything? As you look back on all of the miracles, as you review all of the teaching, as you observe Jesus' character, 
Guys, do you see anything? Do you see anything? Okay, take this blind man at stage one of the miracle. Can he see? Yes, but. And the disciples, can they see? Yes, but. And the same can be true for you and for me. I mean, maybe you are here. Maybe you're investigating Christianity, or maybe you've wandered away, and you are now coming back to the faith. And like the blind man, and like the disciples, you're beginning to see, but it's still a bit blurry. And to determine what they see, Jesus asks them. Okay, but first, he asks them, who other people think that he is. Verse 27, who do people say that I am? Now, apparently, your average politician is obsessed with opinion polls, aren't they? With their, with their personal approval ratings. How, how am I doing? You know, what, what are people saying about me? That is not what Jesus is doing here. In fact, it's the opposite. You see, think what he did with the blind man. Verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And Jesus is doing exactly that with the disciples. Everyone else, the village, everyone else has their opinion of who Jesus is. But he wants the disciples to come to the decision of who he is for themselves. It's as if he takes them by the hand and leads them out of other people's opinion, out of the village, to be with him alone. Okay, so, but first, what is everyone else saying? What is the the village, if you like, saying? Verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Okay, all of which, if you're a traveling rabbi, okay, who's you know, never been to university, never got a formal education, those are huge compliments, aren't they? Okay, because you know, those are the heroes, and yet they don't go far enough. Okay, but what is interesting, I think, is that in our post-Christian culture, people can have surprisingly similar views to the village, can't they? if they have a view at all, if they believe Jesus existed at all. They may say that Jesus is one of the great religious figures, you know, one of the great religious founders, you know, an enlightened teacher up there with the Buddha, you know, or a great mystic. Or they may see him as, you know, he could have been a great social reformer, but sadly his program was hijacked by Paul and the church. Okay, while, while what other people think about what, who Jesus is, while that matters, what Jesus is doing here is telling them that when it comes to him, you can't submit a proxy vote. Okay, you can't get somebody else to decide for you. You can't just go along with the crowd. Instead, Jesus makes this intensely personal. It's not what the crowd thinks. It's not what the village of your family or your parents, you know, youth, if, if you're in here, or, or what the village of your, your friends say. It's not what TikTok village or Twitter village or whatever village says. 
Jesus takes them and you and me by the hand aside from the village and asks, verse 29, but who do you say that I am? I mean, as Mark encouraged you to think, who, who do you say he is? And he places the responsibility for that decision on each of us personally. And Peter's the one who gives the answer. Verse 29, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one who all the law and the prophets and the history of Israel has been promising would come. You are the final, ultimate king in the line of David. That's who you are. Peter sees, except he sees partially. It's blurred because he has all of these expectations of how he thinks this Messiah is going to behave. And what Jesus makes clear is he's not that kind of a Messiah. And it is only by really understanding Jesus' true identity that Peter and you and I can understand why Jesus will do what he does and it is only in understanding his true identity and why he does what he does that you and I can find our true identity. Second point then, what flows from identity? The question of identity, what flows from identity? Okay, so up until now, Mark's gospel has been building to this question, this identification of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. From now on, the gospel takes a turn. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, if you've been around here long enough, you know that um, most years we do a Christmas play and the funniest bits are typically those where I am sat there going, uh, that was not in the script, okay? That's what Peter's thinking, isn't it? Peter is listening to Jesus and going, Jesus, that is not in the script. Except Peter's not laughing. Peter's deadly serious. And if in verse 31, Mark tells us that Jesus began to teach them that he must suffer, in verse 32, Peter takes Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus begins to teach them, so, Paul, so Peter begins to rebuke him. Because, along with every other Jewish person at the time, Peter has no space, he's got no headspace for the idea of a suffering Messiah. Suffering, rejection, and death. They're not in the script of the Messiah. But a Messiah who defeats their physical flesh and blood enemies, like the Romans. A Messiah who gathers God's people and ushers in a new and glorious era of righteousness and geopolitical power. That's what's in the script. A military political let's crush our political military enemies that's the kind of messiah we need and not for the first or the last time peter's just like us isn't he 
I mean, have you ever found yourself wanting to tell God how the script of your life should go? Or how the script of a loved one's life should go? And you want to take him aside and correct him. And that's, that's not in the script, God. Not for me, not for them. You see, Peter thinks he understands better than Jesus what Jesus needs to do in this situation and how he needs to do it. And in particular, the suffering plays no part in God's will for his life. Okay, but look how Jesus responds, verse 33. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Ever experienced that? Going from top of the class, giving the right answer to being expelled about three minutes later? Why does Jesus respond so sharply? Because he sees where this is coming from, doesn't he? He sees where it's coming from, and he sees where it's going. You see, at his baptism, God the Father speaks over Jesus and says, You are my beloved son. What is that? It's, it's a declaration of his identity, isn't it? What immediately follows that? Him going into the wilderness and him being tempted by Satan to question his identity and what he should do based on that. If you really are the son of God. And here, Peter is making another declaration of Jesus' identity. You're the Messiah. But what follows is Peter unwittingly tempting Jesus to avoid the implications of that identity. And so Jesus says to him, verse 33, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Peter, you've got the job title right, but the job description wrong. And the things of man are to think the way that the world thinks, that our greatest enemies are flesh and blood enemies, and they're to be crushed with political power. That's the things of man. But the things of God are to understand that our real enemies are not going to be defeated by physical power or political power, but through the weakness of the cross. That's why Jesus says, verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer. To suffer and to be rejected and to die and to be raised, that is what must flow out of who Jesus is. You see, the answer to who Jesus is and why he must do what he must do can tell you who you are and what you must do. Jesus' identity and what flows out of that can tell you your identity and what must flow out of your identity. Because it's Christ's identity that has the power to define your identity. Third and last point then, the source of identity. Okay, the source of identity. I mean, how do you find an identity? How do you find an identity? How do you decide, this is who I am? This is who I am. This is who Martin Slack is. This is who John Pollard is. I mean, you could take the way of expressive individualism, couldn't you? You decide who you are based on your feelings. 
and especially on, you know, today, especially on your sexual desires. You self-identify. And if you think about it, to do that has taken on near-religious overtones. To publicly affirm others in their chosen identities is the way that you prove yourself to be a good person. And if you do the opposite and question someone's self-identity, you are committing the unforgivable sin and you risk excommunication as a heretic. It's taken on religious connotations. And it's your identity determined by you that determines how you then live. Or, that's expressive individualism, or you could turn that on its head, couldn't you? You could do it the other way around and define your identity by what you do or by what you have. And how you see yourself is intimately tied up with your relationships or with your career. And when those are going well, you feel secure about yourself. You feel good in your skin. But when they're not, if your job ends or if your success begins to falter, who are you then? What's happened to your identity? Well, here Jesus shows us a different way. Okay, look at verses 34 to 36. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. You see, expressive individualism says, express yourself. Find yourself inside yourself and express that. That is the way to life. Whereas Jesus is offering you an identity. He's offering you meaning and purpose and significance that is built on relationship with him. If anyone would come after me. And whereas alarm bells start ringing for Peter when Jesus starts talking about suffering, and whereas expressive individualism says, express yourself, Jesus says, no. If you really want to live, deny yourself. And whereas secular materialism says, get your identity from what you do, from what you earn, Jesus says in verse 36, listen, you can earn the whole world and still lose your soul. It is by dying to yourself, he says, that you live. It's in losing yourself that you find. It's in giving up that you get to keep. In other words, it's in becoming Christ's servant that you can become truly free. Now, if that takes some swallowing today, okay, look what he says next. Anyone who comes after him must, verse 34, take up his cross. It's hard to recapture the stigma of what a cross meant back then, isn't it? I mean, firstly, obviously, it was a means of execution. So someone who is carrying their cross is a dead man walking. And so Jesus is saying that to find your identity in him is to daily die to the temptation to find your identity elsewhere, in wealth or in victimhood, in sex or success. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed by the Nazis, wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Okay, but a cross is not just a means to death. It was the most shameful of deaths. 
And Jesus is saying, if you really want to find life, if you really want to find who you are, and you want to live life to its full, embrace that shame. Embrace the shame of the cross. And when Mark first published this gospel in Nero's Rome, to be a Christian was shameful. For some of them, it literally meant being hung on a cross. It was shameful. But in a secular, materialistic, expressive, individualistic age, it's becoming shameful again. And Jesus says, if you really want to know life, hey guys, embrace that shame. Embrace it. Let him be the one who shapes who you are and what you do. Now, why do that? Why do that? Because if you think about it, expressive individualism will be a whole lot easier, won't it? And secular materialism will give you a whole load more toys to play with. So you might have a lot more fun along the way if you take one of the other routes. Why take Jesus' route? For two reasons. Number one, because eternity matters. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You see, the expressive individualist who wants to decide for himself who he is and insists on that risks losing the very thing that they are trying to save, while the materialist is also in danger. Verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He, he risks, you know, if the expressive individualist risks losing his soul, so does the secular materialist. He risks his identi identity being buried under his wealth or his success. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking about it. Jesus told a parable about exactly that, didn't he? A rich man and a poor beggar both die. And despite being poor, it is Lazarus the beggar who goes to paradise, to Abraham's bosom, while the rich man ends up in hell. What's the strange thing about that parable? The strange thing about the parable is that it's Jesus' only parable where he gives a name to one of the characters. And it's Lazarus, the poor man, who would have been nameless to everybody else. Okay, and you read the parable and you think, okay, if Lazarus has got a name, why hasn't the rich man got a name? But then, of course, you realize he does have a name. He's rich man. His wealth is his identity. He has gained the world and he's lost himself. It doesn't have to be wealthy, does it? It could be your research output. It could be your family. It could be your reputation. It could be your looks. It could be your political positions. This thing, whatever it is, can become so much your thing that it becomes your identity and it begins to consume you. It begins to be who you are. And what Jesus makes clear is that what you don't have now, you don't magically regain in eternity. The rich man continues to be rich man, but that's all he is. He has become like his money, 
cold, lifeless, heartless. And Jesus is saying, guys, don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, come after me and die to the stuff that holds you because it is only by dying to it that you can be truly you and it can find its right place and its good place in your life. That's the first reason. Why should you follow after Christ and take up your cross and deny yourself? Because eternity matters. But there's a second reason to find your identity in him. Okay, go back to verse 31, where Jesus tells the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer. Why the must? Must suffer. Why the must? And the answer is because of you, because of me. Because of verse 37 for what can a man give in return for his soul now why would you need to give something in return for your soul why do you need to give something in return for your soul only if you owe your soul to someone only if you are in debt to someone and that debt is you and Jesus is saying yeah, that's the case. You owe God your life. You're in debt to him. The record of all the stuff that you have done that you shouldn't have done and all the stuff you should have done but you haven't done, that stands against you. And it is like a spreadsheet of profit and loss, except everything is in the loss column. And the total debt, the total sum adds up to your life. What can you give in exchange for that? What are you going to offer God as a swap for that? How much money can you make and offer that money to God? How many papers can you publish? How many affirmative likes can you tick? None of it will ever be enough, Jesus says. What can you give in exchange for you? Nothing. So he says, I will give myself for you. And Jesus had to suffer so that we might be healed. He was arrested so that we might be set free. He was rejected so that you can be accepted by God, your heavenly father. He was killed and raised to life so that we too might live. You see, Peter here thinks that the greatest enemy is Rome, to be defeated by military or political might. Jesus knows that our greatest enemies are sin and death, and he defeats those enemies by the seeming weakness of the cross. The Son of Man must suffer. So, why take up your cross and embrace the shame and follow him? Because he took up his cross and embraced the shame for you. In his recent book, The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity, Douglas Murray, who is gay and an atheist, he recognizes that we have got to find, as a society, as a culture, we have got to find an alternative 
to the identity politics that are tearing our societies apart. And the solution he offers is that we need to, we need to rediscover, he says, a meaning and a purpose, an identity that is not based on identity politics. He says we need to find a generosity towards others that transcends our differences. And he says we need to have a way, we need to find a way to forgive. He's right on all of those. The problem is, as you come to the end of the book, is he can't tell you why or how you can do any of those things. But Christianity can. The gospel can. Because it can give you an identity that both humbles you and lifts you up. It tells you, you are so indebted to God, Christ, the Messiah, had to give his life for you. But you are so loved by God that the Messiah did give his life for you. It can make you generous, not just in deed, but in thought and word. Generous with the way you treat others. Because it tells you that when you are on the opposing side, Christ was infinitely generous to you. And it can make you forgiving. Because when you didn't deserve it, Christ forgave you. Expressive individualism and secular materialism can never offer you a secure identity or the grace of generosity or the grace of forgiveness. Christ can give you all three and so much more besides. Let's pray together.